Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll get into this because we've got a lot to cover. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word to instruct us, to enrich us, to comfort us, to guide us, to feed us. We thank you for the book of Psalms. I think everyone in this room could probably testify to the fact that the Psalms, uh, through the years, have brought comfort and peace to their hearts. I could even say that for me for this past week and some things that happened. And so we thank you, Father. And we, we know all of us have our favorite psalms. But, Lord, we are coming here to, to get a, a big picture of what, what you're doing there in 150 songs of prayer and praise to our great God and Savior. May you bless us today as we look into your word. May, may the words that I speak give a, have clarity, and may, Father, uh, your people be encouraged and instructed and helped. So bless us now as we get into this, and we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's do a little bit of review to get everybody on the same page with us. So in our introduction last week, we listened to Calvin say that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. That is, they reveal to us the inner emotions and devotions of the people of God from long ago, as early as the 15th century B.C. down to the 6th century B.C., or perhaps even later, down to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is how they bared their hearts before God, how they expressed their pains and burdens and troubles. This is how they laid hold of hope, how they found strength to endure every burden they faced, and how they found peace and even joy in their afflictions and attacks. That's a pretty amazing statement there, and yet you will find that in the Psalms. And so, so this solid foundation of faith that they possess, that I trust you possess, in the faithfulness of God, faith in the faithfulness of God, resting in Him, allowed them to soar in their praise and, and, and to the greatness and glory of God. Last week also we learned about the title and the organization of the Psalms. The Hebrew Bible uses the word Tehillim. So that's what the Hebrews, the Jews, would call it today, the Tehillim, which means praises. The Greek, and you'll see LXX, that, that, by the way, that stands for, by the way, what, what number is that? Okay, I've got some Latin scholars here. 70. So this is the Septuagint. Septu is the 70 also. But Septuagint. And this is just the abbreviation for it, so I didn't have to write it out. But I did have to give a long explanation, so it all cancels, right? Uh, but anyway, the Septuagint was uh, written uh, 2nd, 3rd century B.C., or it was translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, 2nd, 3rd century. The Septuagint was the, the, uh, it was the Bible Jesus often used and quoted from. He's, he used the Greek. In many places, Paul did as well. Oh, thanks, Turner. Uh, don't mind that man. He's just handing out checks and money. And 
These, by the way, I'll stop here for a second just to say what these are. You can put them aside for a few moments. Um, we'll maybe talk about them at the end. This is just a way for you to approach uh, the Psalms, study the Psalms. It's uh, taken from this particular book, one-to-one Bible reading. If you're someone who would like to get into real Bible study and understanding God's Word, this is a classic, simple work that will help you with that. And what I have pulled out of this book, David Helm is a personal friend. I worked with him for probably, oh, uh, 12, 14 years in Simeon Trust, training pastors uh, in, in exposition. But this particular page that you are getting is how to read the Psalms. Because there's different genres, different styles of literature in the Bible. The Psalms are poetry. And so there are different questions you ask that rather than in a narrative section. But you could take this book and what it has to teach you, and it talks about how to read the Gospels, how to read other things. You could take that book and just begin reading the Bible using those questions, and you could do your own Bible study or get together with someone. If you're wanting to disciple someone, this is an excellent way. But this is the Psalms. I thought it might be helpful for you in your own personal study. Now, before I rudely interrupted myself there, we were talking about the Septuagint, which calls it the Psalmoi. And uh, it's been carried over, and so we call it the book Psalms. Now, there is an early manuscript, and this is for someone who had a, had a great question afterwards because they said you kept using the word Psalter, and they were unfamiliar with it. Well, there's an early manuscript, and it, the title of the Psalms was Psalterion. And this was an instrument like a zither that was used when you would play to sing the Psalms. Uh, so anyway, this... this uh, it was, it was a zither, and, 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 and so the psalterion was then shortened to psalter, and so the psalms were known as the psalter, named after an instrument that accompanied the singing of the songs. Um, then, the New Testament refers to these writings that we're going through here as the book of Psalms. Surprise, surprise, Right? Um, though it may be a surprise to some of us, in Luke 20, 42, and Acts 1, 20, it's interesting that Luke, as a Gentile, uses the Septuagint idea of the Psalms here and, and uh, even attributes um, uh, Psalms to David. Notice, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's Luke 20, quoted from Psalm 110. We talked about the divisions in the book of Psalms. There are five divisions or five books within the Psalms. The five books are identified in the text of the Psalms, uh, and they were accepted by a Jewish tradition as well. The Jews still see these as well. And so here are those five books. You have a chart in last week's handout, which gives you all this. But here's a simple listing. Book one are the first 41 Psalms. From there, those are basically about David. And then the next one, also basically about David, Psalms 42 to 72. Then it begins to break out somewhat into other writers, sons of Korah, sons of Asaph, uh, book 3 is Psalm 73 to 89. Probably next week, I hope to get to Psalm 89 and uh, to study that and read it in advance. That is a long psalm, but it is an incredible psalm. But, you know, 
we know Psalm 23, Psalm 100. The, some of those psalms stick in our mind. Psalm 89 probably does not jump into your head as one of the psalms, but it's there. And then book 4, Psalm 90 to 106. This is book 4, and then it concludes with Psalm 107 to 150. So these were the divisions that were put together by David in the start. But, of course, he passed away, and then it was committed to the temple priests and the temple priests to the first and second temples. Both worked through this so that by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we had the five books that we have in our Bibles for today. Now, within these five books, there are also other collections. This is just a curiosity thing. But um, there's the Davidic collections. You'll see there's three of those because David's psalms are scattered throughout as the priest and those who were putting this together saw certain psalms fit into certain places. And so there's collections of psalms throughout the Korite collections, this is from the sons of Korah. You've seen that at the top, maybe, of some of the Psalms. And there's sections of those. The Elohistic collection, Psalm 42 to 83. Those Psalms, you don't see the name Yahweh. You see the, the name Elohim, where it's our word for God in the Bible. So this you will see God's name as Elohim throughout these Psalms rather than Yahweh, probably indicating these were earlier psalms as well. And uh, then you've got the uh, Asaphites, uh, the sons of Asa, Asaph. The kingship collections, 93 to 100. I love that section of Scripture. We'll probably do something through there. The first psalm that I ever memorized as a kid, even before I was saved, uh, was in my junior high days, was Psalm 100. I still love that psalm more than any other probably till this day. Uh, praise Psalms, 103 to 107, that's kind of a misnomer, uh, but there's a reason why they call it that, because all the Psalms are praise in some way. I think there's one exception to that. Then Songs of Ascent, this was, these are Psalms that were written for and pilgrims going up to Jerusalem, I, and, and as they went up to Jerusalem, I will lift up my eyes into the hills, well, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, and they're going toward that. We talked a little bit about that, I think, last week. And then finally, the Hallel or Hallelujah Psalms, and there's actually three sections of those, uh, and uh, the 111 to 118 would have been some of the uh, praise songs used during the Passover that Jesus would have sung as well, and then you've got the magnificent 146 to 150. So those, those are some of the other divisions. Uh, in all, David... That first collection, David wrote 73 of the Psalms that are specifically titled as being from David. Now, I wanted to say something here about uh, Psalms and the Covenant. Uh, being a Reformed church, I thought that was appropriate because it's prominent uh, in the Psalms. Um, and also, you're studying. Some of you are in a, if you're not in a study with the men or the women, uh, I'll call Sacred Bond right now. And going through that particular book, I, w I would highly commend you to that book. Uh, it talks uh, quite solidly and yet simply about the covenants and I think explains them as beautifully and lays it out there as any book you could read. Anyway, um, here, a covenant. Here's the way Alan Harmon, in his excellent commentary in the Mentor series, 
uh, talks about a covenant as it relates to the Psalms. A covenant is a bond between God and man, and it is given by a sovereign God as an expression of His grace. In a formal way, He expresses the relationship that exists between Himself and His people. The central core of the covenant is that God promises, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that word covenant, therefore, in the Psalms appears 21 times. However, you might, I don't know if you think that's a lot. I think that's a pretty good number. However, I would, I would put on top of that that uh, even where the covenant um, is, let's see, I'm going to go back. Even where the covenant the word covenant is not explicitly used. There are words and phrases that reflect a covenantal relationship that you'll see throughout the Psalms. You'll, you'll read about the people of God, for instance, in uh, uh, Psalm 29 and Psalm 81 and Psalm 100. Um, the people as God's inheritance, for instance. In fact, I do have a slide of this. I think one more down. Yeah, there we go. The people of God, Psalm 29, second bullet there. The people as an inheritance. Uh, I will be your God and you shall be my people, Psalm 95, 7, and similar wording throughout other Psalms. God's chosen ones, we find references in Psalm 33 and 135. And then there's multiple references throughout the Psalms of God being faithful and about his faithfulness. This is all covenant language, saying that God is going to be faithful to his covenant. Now, let me... Move back up to this. Uh, here's how it kind of divides out, so to speak. Uh, the covenant of Abraham, that's extensively dealt with in Psalm 105. Exodus and the Sinai covenant, there are multitudes of that in the Psalms. And then also the covenant with David. And that's not surprising since this is started during David's time. Psalm 78 is another one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, and uh, maybe sometime I'll either preach that or we'll go through part of that here. Psalm 89. It is a, this is why this is so important is he goes through the majority, probably two-thirds of the psalm, and he's talking about the covenant of David and how God is faithful. And then he comes down and he says, but now, what happened? Our nation's falling apart. There's no hope anymore. God, have you forgotten us? So it's a really, uh, Psalm 89 is, is a major shift here. And that's the end of book three. And so the beginning of the next book is Psalm 90, where they go back to Moses and back to the faithfulness of God, back to the covenant. And we'll talk about that later in 132. So, okay. Um, so. We, we, we got into the reading of Psalms with some understanding last week. We explored how we approach the Psalms in our reading as we look for rhythms rather than rhymes. Uh, we use rhymes in our poetry. The Hebrews used assonance and rhythms, but also some other things here. You'll see parallelism uh, in the lines. They might be synonymous or maybe contrasting one to another. Or intensity and building one line upon the next to give us a more graphic picture and express some stronger emotions. Further, we'll see that in this, uh, you've heard the saying, a picture is worth... Yeah, you sound like a bunch of Presbyterians. I got two people murmuring in the crowd. Now you sound like Israel. What is it? A thousand words. Thank you very much. So anyway... 
Um, by the way, I'm from the sticks, so I understand. I was telling Daryl here about my sticks in the background. I won't tell that because you'll kick me out. Um, anyway, uh, poetry is compressed. It's graphic. It's, it's uh, trying to give us images in our minds. So Hebrew and poetry understands this, and it's filled with imagery, painting pictures through metaphors, other figures of speech to ignite the heart, the mind, and the imagination. Psalm 42, 1. Do you remember how Psalm 42, 1 begins? As the deer pants after the water book, so pants my soul after thee, O God. Why don't you say, why don't you just simply say, you know, I just, I want to know more about God. Or, you know, it's, it's just really good to come and sit in the presence of God and meditate on Him. Why didn't He say that? Because He wanted to give you an image that you won't forget. As a deer who's been out in the wilderness, out in the desert, and they're running, and they're maybe running from, from a, a predator, a lion trying to capture it, and, and, and they're going along, and they come to the end, and it's a... I've got to have a drink. I've got to have a spring. And he drinks it in. That's the way, that's the way, the passion, the psalmist says that he has for God. Now, have you ever had that kind of passion for God? Have you ever had to have him so badly that you could taste it? I'll tell you, this This week has been an interesting week for us. There have been some problems. We've had some things happen. I'm not going to give you details. But something happened. And then on top of that, something else happened Friday night as we were driving home. And we had thing on top of thing. So Friday night, I get home. All right, what are we going to have to do to solve these problems? I got this and this and this and this this. What, what can I do? And, and so I, I, go to, I, I did a little bit of study in the Psalms, went to bed, and I'm lying there. Oh, if, if I could do this and this. Oh, man. Uh, this is going to take a lot to get worked out. Tossing, turning, tossing, turning. Trying to figure it all out. This went on and I was still awake after 2 o'clock. I'm trying to figure out my problem. I'm trying to figure out my problem. So, a little after two, I said, this is ridiculous. So I got my iPad and just started reading Psalms. I thought, I'll read some Psalms. Do you know how many problems David had early in the Psalms? I'm reading through all of this, and I'm thinking, my problems aren't that bad. But God is just as faithful. And I finally, somewhere, I read for over an hour in the Psalms. And finally, somewhere after 3 o'clock. So if I fall asleep during this particular lecture, you will understand. So that's my, my deal. All right. So anyway, these, these psalms here. I, by the way, I, I was Psalm 42.1 right there. I was hungering and thirsting for something. And God satisfied it. God's word will do that for you. 
There's also five nature poems which are so graphic. I wanted uh, maybe to take the time to read Psalm 104 for you, but it's a longer psalm, and I'm afraid I could not do it justice in reading. You need a, a, a beautiful poetic voice when you read Psalm 104 about the creation of God and what he says. You are in awe of God. If you're not, you're dead. Okay, so there's also acrostic psalms. We talked about Psalm 119 last week, so I'll not go over that heavily except to say that every eight verses you've got a section of the psalm that is keyed to each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then, and, and this is where, and, and he's sitting in the back trying to get away, but Kathy came in, so we're okay, where Jack or Kathy could help me here. And uh, because there is a, a phenomenon known as chiasmus. Uh, or in, in structure, um, I'm a, I'm, let me see if there's something over here. I'm, wasn't planning this, but you know, that's life. All right, so you you've got something here, and and you've got a statement here, and then you go to something that develops, and then you've got something further that develops. And then maybe, let's say, to keep this simple, you, you, here is a major, here's the major focus, here's the core. So then you come back out here, and he restates something that was up here before. And then he returns here to what he started with, okay? Now, look at this quote. As an artist seeks a visual balance in composition when he is drawing, when a person is drawing, he or she is drawing, the chiasm obliges an oral, oral world with an oral balance. So in a chiasm's return to its point of departure, a resolution satisfies the ear's anticipation like music's return to the opening key. Have you ever heard somebody play something, they come right up to the end of the song and they don't play the last note, and you're saying, play the note! <laughs> you know, so they're like, and, and Kathy was trying to explain this to me about sonatas uh, this morning, and she was saying how a sonata will have the exposition at the start, and then there's development, and then there is a recapitulation at the end. And this, this happens in a lot of ways in music. Am I close enough? Okay. I, I'm just talking about the music, sweetheart. Okay. So, uh, anyway, that's, that's what we're talking about there. Um, and so there is a sense here where you see that structure. You're going to see that in New Testament writings because this is part of the way of the, the, the Near East. So you're going to see this kind of development, and we will see it as well. We're going to see it here fairly soon. So now, uh, just to wake everybody up, it's your turn. So I want you to take, if you, if you have your sheet from last week, or get a, a Bible out, and I would like for you to turn to Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2. If you look at that sheet, and if you don't have it, fine. Just turn your Bible. It's fine. The Bible's better than the sheet. And on the back, page four, you will see that there, there is side by side 
Psalm 1 and 2. You may want to also take a, uh, a pencil or a pen if you would like to do some marking as we go through this. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to interact with me. That means you speak out loud. Okay, I just, again, I've got to make that clear here in the church. Uh, but this is not church service. It's not the worship service. This is a class, so let's treat it that way. So if you've got that, look at your Bible. Let's, let's read Psalm 1. I will read it, and you follow along carefully. You may want to put, uh, you know, uh, markings. I put a couple of markings in there already for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its fruit does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Hmm. Okay. So, two key words. I want you to look at the first and last verse. You may find a little hint there uh, on the sheet. And I'm looking there for uh, a state or a condition uh, which will be contrasting to each other. What's a key word you will see in verse 1 and verse 6? Verse 1, what is it? It's underlined. (laughs) Blessed, okay. Okay, so blessed. Now, in contrast, what do you find in verse 6? And it's not the first word of the whole thing. It's the last word. Perish. So, here you've got blessed and perish at the bookends. Let's talk more. Uh, I'm looking for two metaphors that describe two kinds of people. Uh, Like, this would be really good for you to spot a metaphor. Like, I mean, it's kind of the coolest thing, like, you know. So, maybe, like, look for the word like. Okay? Okay. Uh, so what, where would you find these in verses 3 and 4? Give me two metaphors that correspond to those contrasts we just had. A what? Tree and chaff. Everybody see that? Mark them so you'll remember this for later on. You know, tonight when you wake up at 2 o'clock and you have nothing to do, pull, pull out this sheet and look at it and meditate on it. So, so there's, there's, we've got then blessed and blessed and perish. We've got a tree. We've got chaff. Now, we've got some images here that are associated with the metaphors that are used. And, and so what is said about each? What is said about the tree? What is said about the chaff? What about the tree, first of all? What does it say about it? Okay. It's planted firmly. It's planted firmly by the streams of water. All right. What is said about the chaff? gone okay you with me all right then how about the two groups let's let's identify 
who these people are, how God identifies them in verse 6, both appearing in verse 6. There's the righteous and there's the, and there's the wicked. Okay. And there's two destinies. In verse 6, what are, how are the righteous, what is said about the righteous as it relates to God in verse 6? He knows them. He knows them. Uh, that's an intimacy word there. And what is said about the wicked in relationship to God? Uh, they're going to be judged. They will be judged and, and will, will perish. Okay. So, let's uh, see how I want to do this. By the way, I'm going to say something that will appear a little later, and I'll just get rid of it when it appears. But Psalm 1, I'd like to point out, is not written as a command. There's no command given there. It's an observation, something that we acknowledge to be true. There is, there's a commendation here. Uh, you, this is something you ought to do. You will find blessing in seeking and making the Lord and His Word your chief end in life. But this is not a stern lecture like my lecture is to you right now. This is something where we're working through a simple truth that's to be understood. He is saying there are two ways for you to go. There are two ways which you must choose that you would go in life. And so we saw there all those things that you could put in a column and compare those two. Uh, Jesus, by the way... Uh, modified the example. Where did Jesus talk about two ways? Or how did, how did he describe the two ways? The broad and the narrow way. Okay? One leads to life. One leads to death. So he did that. And, of course, he was the way. The truth. The life that we have to follow. So, uh, this perspective of Psalm 1 is that life and death depend upon being in a right relationship with Yahweh. And the fear of not being in a right relationship is precisely what drives us to make God's word our delight to nourish us. But now, wait. I read this psalm and I see this, the blessed man. He meditates. When does he meditate on God's word? Does he put in 15 minutes a day, five minutes a day? What does he do? He's, he is constantly meditating in the word of God, isn't he? He meditates when? Day and night. So it, the, the word of God is never far from him in his mind. He may not have it open here, but it's, op, it's an open book up here in his heart. I, I was a pastor for over 40 years. You know, I, I, I don't know. Did I really? I mean, I was in the Scripture a lot. I actually spent, well, you don't even know, they didn't know that. But the, the, the time that I spent in God's Word studying and, and even putting together a lecture like this was a lot. But I don't know I can really say that I was just permeated and hungering for, and day and night. Now, it would come up periodically in my mind, but i got other things to do. And 
I've got other distractions and I've got other temptations and I'm a sinner and I'm selfish and so I want some me time. Yeah. I'm not saying now you become some kind of monk up in a you know, monastery, but what I am saying here is I'm not perfect. I'm not I am not the perfectly blessed man. I am blessed, but I'm not perfect in it. And so as I'm working through this because I don't always live out the life of a blessed man delighting in the law of God, where do I turn for help for a refuge, key word, in judgment? Okay, let's look at Psalm 2. This is, these two psalms, 1 and 2, are called the gateway to the psalms. I want you to think of two pillars here that are ushering us into a sanctuary of praise that is that fill is filled with the other 148 psalms. So these two are introducing us and there are themes in these first two that are going to be just all over the place in the rest of the psalms. That uh, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore... Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. All right, let's, let's look at these two psalms for a moment. This, I think, will really help you to see these two psalms are fitting pillars and, in fact, fit together hand in glove. Notice that the opening line of Psalm 1 matches the closing line of Psalm 2. Blessing. Notice the warning that the way of the wicked will perish in 1.6. And the warning again, the wicked will perish in the way. No, it's way and wicked, the way of the wicked, both of these. Images of the wicked. Well, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Images of the wicked in Psalm 2. The wicked are dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, it's your throwaway stuff. The theme of mockery. Now, here's where it really gets uh, fun and interesting both. Theme of mockery. The wicked sit as scoffers. They are scoffing at God, scoffing about God in Psalm 1. 
So here in number two, Psalm 2, theme of mockery, God sits also. He sits, though, in the heavens. Different perspective. And notice this. He laughs in righteous ridicule. He also scorns, but he scorns those who scorn him. Interesting working. Then the word meditation. The blessed man meditates day and night in the word of God. 2-1 of, of uh, the psalm, Psalm 2. The peoples also meditate. It's the very same Hebrew word. So we are blessed in meditation, but they are plotting. They are meditating on how to throw off the law of God, how to throw off all the rules. And then the fruit, the blessed man prospers like a tree planted by the water. The fruit of the anointed king is his triumph over the nations. So there is abundant fruit there in both. Do you see how these two match up so beautifully? These, these psalms uh, are intended that way and written that way. We talked about those words already. So as we look at Psalm 2 then, just to do a quick analysis there. Uh, there are four voices that are heard in Psalm 2. And as we identify these voices and what is being said here, we will find that we will have... A chiasm. It's a simpler chiasm than what I put up there. There's the C would be missing. There's just an A B B A. But let's look at these. Look at Psalm one, uh, two, one through three, and what? Whose voice are we hearing in two, one to three? Not uh, one through three. Let me let me read those verses again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away the cords from us. So who's doing some talking here? The kings of the earth. Yeah, the these these are the, the wicked, the wicked of Psalm 1 are now expressing themselves. All right, what about 4 through 6? Let me read it. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's talking here? Well, it's the Lord. Yeah, the Lord is talking here. And he is setting the record straight. We come to verses 7 through 9. And it says, uh, uh, God has just spoken. And then, here you have to follow carefully. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. And somebody else speaks saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. And so on. Who is speaking here? And let me help you. That's not the wicked. And it's not the Lord in heaven. It's Jesus. You know, usually the answer is when a pastor asks you a question, Jesus is always a pretty safe answer. But, but we don't wanna, I don't want to say Jesus at this point. 
I will, but not right here. This is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's king, the one he has set in dominion. Okay? All right. And then finally, 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun. And so, who is speaking here? Uh, are, are, do I really want uh, speaking there? The focus here is on the kings. I won't say speaking because the Lord is doing some speaking here in another way. So, this helps us to get the chiasmus. So in verses 1 through 3, we see the nations conspiring. And then down in 4, we see the rulers warned. You're conspiring against God? Down at the end, 10 to 12, let me warn you. There is a king, an anointed king, the Lord's anointed. And in the middle of this, you will see that 4 to 6, Yahweh responds to the conspiracy of the kings of the earth. And then the king himself proclaims. And so he talks. So this is a very simple chiasm. I'm going to give you a, more, a stronger one a little later. But I wanted you to see what it looked like in its simple form. All right. So with that all said, when Psalm, this is uh, James Hamilton. When Psalm 1 is read together with Psalm 2, the synergy between the two pieces of poetry suggests that the true blessed man who meditates day and night on the Torah, the law, the word, Psalm 1 and 2, will be the king that the Lord has installed on Zion, his holy hill. This does not necessarily limit the application of the psalm to the future king, for the congregation of the righteous, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, cannot be so designated unless they too follow the ways of the blessed man. Like him, they are blessed as they take refuge, key word, in the King Messiah. So, what, what this is basically saying is these two psalms are working together, but they are also not just simply encouraging us to meditate day and night. They're saying there is an answer in a perfect one who will come, who will meditate in God's word day and night, who will follow the ways of the Lord, who is going to be your refuge. That's why the end of chapter 2, or I shouldn't say chapter, Psalm 2, is telling us there, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. You're blessed if you meditate in, in the law of the Lord, but the blessing really comes as you take refuge in the King. You with me? Okay, hang with me for about 12 more minutes. So if we're doing some application of this psalm, and, and I know you're looking up here already. I probably shouldn't have put it up here. As we've just been talking about this psalm, what does this psalm say to us? I'm not talking about saying to you, and it just says to me. What, I'm, what, what is the psalm really teaching us? What do we know from here? And, and how, would I, how would I respond in life to that? Don't fret. There are two ways, but don't fret because there is a refuge. There is a way to escape, okay? Anybody else want to wake up and mention anything? Well, I, you know, do, do I seek God's blessing by delighting in and meditating on the teachings of God's Word? How much time do I spend in His Word? I hope it is a daily 
discipline, not just a habit, a discipline in your life that you're doing that. Uh, did Jesus show himself to be meditating in the Torah? Well, if he's, gonna, if he's the king, he should be meditating in the Torah, right? And, and how do we know? This is one interesting glimpse into his life. Um, how do we know that he meditated in the Word? Look at Matthew 4. Anybody know what happens in Matthew 4? What's that about? Temptations of Christ. Okay, so the devil came to him. This is a reenactment, by the way, of Genesis 3. So, when you, when you read Matthew 4, um, and you're going along in Matthew 4, you see that three temptations. And some people analyze it by the lust of uh, the... Uh, Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the, the um, pride of life. So you, you, know, you see those kind of things going on. But basically, there's three temptations. And my concern is here, did he, did he surrender to Satan's temptation as Eve did? No. And how did he respond? Scripture. scripture. Do you know where that scripture comes from? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. You know, do you know what Deuteronomy contains? The, the Torah, the law, and what the king is supposed to do and how he is supposed to live. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8, a very close section. My, my, in my dream world, my thinking here is that Jesus undoubtedly had been meditating in that section of Deuteronomy on that day. And when the temptation came, the answer was there because he was meditating in the law of the Lord. If we did more meditating, no, if I did more meditating in the law of the Lord, then when a temptation came, immediately, rather than saying, you know, what I want to do about this, immediately the God's word would convict, it would direct, and give me the answer that I need in that moment. All right, I'm preaching too much. Okay, we we rejoice, third bullet, we rejoice as God's people in reading Psalm 1 and praising God for the active obedience of Christ in living righteously, that by his righteousness, his righteousness might be ours. I am glad Jesus was the righteous one. I am glad that he meditated in that law. I am glad he is the blessed man. So the anointed king of Psalm 2 is the blessed man. Of Psalm 1. And I need to follow in those steps. Uh, I'm going to skip over some of this to get on to some other things. But there's, there's, we learn about judgment here and all, all, all of this. Everything that we get out of Psalm 1 and 2 should lead us to the point that we do this on the assurance that the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the anointed king of Psalm 2. All right. So now let's move on to Psalm 3. It's interesting that Psalms 3 through 7, or you could even go down to Psalm 9, focus on the opposition or enemies of the king, with Absalom being mentioned. When you look at, um, look at Psalm 3, if you've got your Bible anywhere near you, let me... Psalm 3 is, has a very, 
This is why you always look at the superscriptions. And in Psalm 3, it says this. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So you don't have to read Psalm 3 and say, I wonder what he's talking about. We know. Because Psalm 3 is set in a very dark backdrop. And, and, and so all of these psalms here, Psalm 1 talked about the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 talked about the rebellion of the wicked. Psalm 3 now talks about the attack of the wicked. Psalm 4 will talk about the slander of the wicked, revealing his heart. And then Psalm 5 is the, God's reaction to the wicked. There is, a, there is emotion. There is a sense of motion and direct, direction in the psalms, which is why they have set them where they have. So it's always good to read them in that kind of order as well. But getting, getting back to this, um, the backstory of Psalm 3 is um, all the more grim here. Absalom's sister, Tamar, has been violated and forced incest by half-brother Amnon. And understandably enraged, Absalom, uh, his sister, having been raped, uh, he plots to murder Amnon. And he carries it out. And then, in fear of reprisal from his father David, Absalom flees to Geshur to find refuge. And, and after an extended exile, he's allowed to come back. But there is a root of bitterness in his soul, like Hebrews talks about. And he lingers uh, in his heart this, this malice. And it manifests itself in rebellion and conspiracy against his father, the king. The son undermines his king's authority. He draws all the malcontents he has. And if you look into Second Samuel, you will find chapter 15 that it says all Israel began to follow Absalom because he had done all this work to undermine. David feels the pressure to abdicate the throne. And so he chooses to leave the royal city, the capital city. And Absalom marches in and takes over. David wants no bloodshed, and Absalom revels in his new position, and he brandishes his power and authority, even taking David's concubines publicly um, before all of that. So it is a horrible situation that this man is living in, and, and uh, God does not always... Uh, the, the, a principle that comes out of this, I don't know that I have this up here... No. So here's a principle that I'm learning as I read Psalms 3 through 9. That God does not always keep us from trouble, but he will always see us through trouble. He doesn't keep us from trouble. The anointed king, David, because the first application, by the way, of Psalm 2 is also to David. So he is the anointed king. He is blessed by God in that position, but even though he's a blessed man and sits on the throne, life isn't easy because we live in a broken world. So the prayer that we're looking at here in Psalm 3 is a prayer for us in our times of trouble when the burdens are great, when we're tempted to fear. But our hope is anchored in the God who loves us, who is our shield, who is our strength, who fights our battles, gives us blessing upon blessing. So all of these things are in Psalm 3. I'm not going to go through the whole psalm. We, we can't do that with all the psalms. But go back and read that psalm today in light of that. And then listen, listen carefully for a distant echo. David is the king. There's someone who wants to put down the king. 
to break his bonds, to break the cords. It's Psalm 2 being acted out. The statement theologically is Psalm Psalm 2. The reality is in Psalm 3, and I hear a distant echo that comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 14. We will not have this man reign over us. The world, uh, Bert Bacharach died this week. One of his famous songs is, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Okay? The problem is, what are you loving? And the world doesn't love God. That's why we need to love God. Okay, I'm, I've only got a few minutes here. Let me get, get to the rest of this. Let me show you now. As this develops on, 3 through 9, there's, there's an antagonism, but it's growing, it's intensifying. By the time you get to Psalms 11 to 14, it's, this is a horrifying backdrop now that appears, that makes it appear as if everything is hopeless. By the way, where did our pastor preach from last Sunday? What was his message on? Oh, I'm going to tell him. I told him this week, they didn't remember my, my preaching from January 1, so, you know. And you didn't even remember from last week. So, Psalm 12, all right? It's set in here. So let's see, let's see a little bit. Let's see the setting of all of this. For instance, here's what we read in Psalm 11, 1 through 3. In the Lord I take refuge. Ah, there's that refuge. That word's going to come up over and over and over. I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? So somebody's come to David and says, you've got to get out of here. You've got to save your life. Flee like a bird to the mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? <sighs> the king's being rejected. What can we do? Psalm 12, where we heard from last week. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Gone. For the faithful men have vanished from among the children of men. I don't see anybody... Where's faithfulness anymore? Where's a godly man anymore? Psalm 13. Psalm right after what pastor preached. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Hear that echo? That echo that you're hearing there is deep sorrow and depression. He is all the day. What what does he have all the day? Sorrow in my soul all the day. I thought he was supposed to be meditating God's word all the day. Interesting development. Psalm 14. So then we have the the peak, the summit of it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We've got to the point where people don't don't accept any kind of God. Anybody see that in our world today? Okay. If you don't, I don't know what you're looking at or reading. But they're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Have you felt that way at times about the world? 
I have felt that way about myself at times. Okay? I get sucked into the world too much. But now, with wickedness, and just give me a couple more minutes. We are, oh yeah, I've got two more minutes. That is off by a little bit. Okay, so with the wickedness abounding, we begin to wonder if there is any who are righteous in the world. And, and uh, it's just us. It, it's just all saints reformed. I, I look around at other churches. I see other churches falling apart or this or that or the other. And, you know, I mean, I see that from my own perspective on some things right now. I won't talk about it. But, uh, and the question is begging to be answered. Who will enter into the blessings of the king? Where, where do we find an answer of all this? Is there anybody that's going to find that kind of answer? Well, Psalms 15 to 24 are another section, and they are a chiasmus. And we're going to go into this next time. So I want you to read through those psalms for next time for one thing. If you don't read any other psalms this week, read through those 15 to 24. And I want you to look at the top and tail, the bookends of this particular chiasm. Psalm 15 will ask the question in, in its own words, um, who shall ascend to the Lord's hill? And when you get to Psalm 24, guess what? It's a repetition almost. It's the same idea. Who's going to ascend? So you've got these bookends, and in between, we begin to find some answers here. Because remember how I told you that at the sea over there, the sea is the center of the core, the real issue that they get to. Look at the one here. Where's, what's it at dead center here? Psalm 19. The glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The law of God declares the glory of God. The redemption of God declares the glory of God. That's three themes in that Psalm 19. That His creation... His word, His redemption to us. That's what's going to be at the center of this. And so you come out of this. Who shall ascend? Who can really match up to this? Well, Psalm 16 will be a comfort to us in that. And we'll go over this next week. And look what corresponds. If you were to go straight down on the, on the, on the margin there, go down to Psalm 23, which will also speak of comfort. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 17 is about hope and resurrection. Corresponding to that is Psalm 22. It is a psalm of hope, even though it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's not talking about David. This is one of David's special moments. Okay? And then Psalm 18 is about deliverance. Of the king, and Psalm 20 and 21 is about the king as well and his deliverance. And there's the glory of God at the center of this. So I want you to take this in your mind home and look through these psalms and try to find and see the pattern that is flowing there. How we're going to start in this question, end with that question and with an answer to it, okay? Father, thank you for this time together. Bless your people and thank you for your word that instructs us and inspires us, informs us, that comforts us. And I pray, Father, as we go to hear our pastor speaking this morning, I believe on Psalm 29, may you open our hearts again to hear your word and be instructed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our anointed King. Amen.